Would you grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Philippians? Chapter 2, we'll be reading from verses 5 to verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find Philippians chapter 2 on page 980 in the Bible in front of you. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Hear the word of our God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a second reading this morning as well, not from the scriptures. Uh, It'll be on the screen above and also in your bulletin. It's the Nicene Creed as the church confesses the identity of our God. So listen. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do declare it our joy to be a church who confesses. You have revealed yourself to us in the Holy Word. You have made yourself known in history through your mighty saving deeds. Even more, you have made yourself known in the person of your Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, Father, we pray. We pray this morning that you would give us grace that we might know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might confess Him truthfully, faithfully, fully to the watching world. 
But Father, we're reminded of John the Baptist as he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he say? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is our very calling. To stand like John and to point to Christ Jesus. To attest to him and his saving work. So Father, be our help. Minister to us now through your word. Give us insight, we pray. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we are rapidly approaching Christmas. It's only a few days away, and we've been taking time off from our our long series on the Gospel of Mark as we explore Jesus' life and ministry and the kingdom that he announces. Last Sunday, we began a, a work of preparation for Christmas, and we, and we began this work of preparation by looking at Psalm 21. And in Psalm 21, we, we learn that Israel is longing and expecting a certain type of king. They're, they're, they, they stake their hopes on a king who would be blessed by God and, and saved by God. And as we looked into Psalm 21 and connected it with the Christmas story, we saw that this very king is the Lord Jesus Christ the truly blessed king, the truly saved king. And so we're going to continue this work of preparation this morning, and we're going to do it by diving into a matter of doctrine this morning. And the sermon is going to revolve around two questions. And the first question is this. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And the second question flows from the first And what did the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplish in his incarnate ministry? Now, as we begin to think about this matter of doctrine, we have to say from the very start that these questions are not peripheral to the Christian faith, not even the Christmas story. We're not addressing a matter of theology that can be left off until later when we have enough time or strength or energy to examine the matter. Rather, what we address in this question is the very matter on which the the Christian religion stands or falls. And as we consider these questions personally for ourselves, it is the very matter on which we will all stand or fall. How will we answer these questions? And when we pursue these matters, when we pursue these questions, we ask a rather personal set of questions. We find ourselves asking, well, well, who is this Jesus that I'm called to entrust myself to? Who is this Jesus that I'm commanded to love and worship, obey, and follow with my whole life? We're asking, well, well, why was this Jesus born of a virgin? Why did he suffer, die? Why was he raised on the third day? What does this all mean? And the need for clarity on these questions is so great in our time. It seems that a haze has come upon the church at large when it comes to the matter of of Christology, this matter of knowing Christ for who he is. In 2018, Ligonier Ministries did a survey of the evangelical church. And what they were doing is they, they asked folks who identified themselves as evangelicals questions about the Christian faith to, to probe their knowledge of it. Now, on some questions, the church did quite well. On the issue of justification, 91% of respondents agreed with a biblical understanding of justification. But when Ligonier Ministry started asking about the person of Jesus Christ, the church ran into a bit of trouble. And so Ligonier put this statement forward, this statement, they're asking, do you agree or disagree? And they, they asked this, 
Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Just let that sink in for a bit. I'll say it again. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And in a shocking revelation, 78% of those who took this exam agreed with this statement, while only 18% disagreed. And so clearly there's much work to be done in this, in this matter of knowing Christ for who he is. And so with these questions of doctrine, with the need before us, we can divide up our time this morning into three sections. First, we need to hear the historic confession of the church, and we're going to briefly chart out a story of controversy as the the church sharpened its confession of who Jesus is, the Son of God. Second, we need to turn from the church's confession and look at the scriptures. Why could the church say this? What are the underpinning of the church's confession? And so we're going to turn to Philippians chapters 2 and see what Paul has to say about Jesus, his identity, and his work. And third, we're going to draw out some applications for ourselves in light of these two points. And so this morning, we can begin with a historic confession of the church. And so if we go all the way back to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and filled the apostles with with zealous, with zeal and with, with boldness. And they went out and they proclaimed the word of Christ. And within the pages of the New Testament, we see the church growing and expanding, spilling out of the nation of Israel, expanding into Gentile lands, going across the Roman Empire. There's growth. But as the message of the gospel spread and flourished, there, of course, was opposition to it, opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And resistance arose from the very countrymen of the apostles, fellow Jews, persecuted Jews, confessing Jesus. We're reminded of the chilling words we find in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, as Luke describes this scene. Though Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. While other persecution came upon the church through through powerful, powerful political forces and figures. And you can go back and read the historical accounts of political figures who persecuted the church You can read about Nero and and Trajan and and Diocletian. But the most dangerous opposition the church faced arose from within the church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders about this coming situation. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so as we think about it, physical persecution, emotional persecution, losing your job, being harassed would certainly be demoralizing as a people. But what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, there's something more dangerous than this. It is false teaching. False teaching not only can can wreck the body, but it can wreck the whole soul as it draws one away from God. And when you survey the New Testament, there's commands about false teaching all over the place. Be on guard. And this morning, we're going to focus in on one particular false teaching in the church's response to it, a false teaching that bears down upon our questions. Well, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? What did the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnate ministry actually accomplish and attend to do? And so a few generations after the death of the apostles, a man actually arose from within the church 
This man was nourished and he was taught by the church. He was even ordained by the church. But ultimately, this man would bring great error and destruction into the church. And this man's name was, was Arius. Now, as we think about Arius and acquaint ourselves with this ancient man, we need to know a few things about this guy. First of all, Arius was a logical thinker. He loved to reason. He was not a dull man. And as Arius listened to the church's teaching on the relationship between the father and the son, as he listened to it and and took it in, drank it deeply, he began to see inconsistencies and and logical errors, he thought. And so as he listened to the church's teaching, he, he began to reason. Well, if the father begat the son, even if this action took place before all ages, well, doesn't this mean that there was a time when there was no son? Doesn't this mean that there's a substantial difference in the essence of the father between the essence of the son? And so Arius, as he reasoned, a taught that while the son of God was greater than any other created being, he yet at the end of the day was a created being. The second thing we need to know about Arius was that he was a, a vigorous Bible teacher. He was a man who, who loved the scriptures, and that might shock us a bit. And what he would do in his ministry, he would teach the scriptures plainly and powerfully. To expound his understanding of Jesus, what would he do? Well, he would take people to the scriptures. He took people to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, and he, he would bring them to this text. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. He would draw attention to the words of Jesus, actually, in John chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus says... I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And he would capitalize on texts like found in Paul's epistles, like Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul is describing Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says, the firstborn of all creation. What Arius would do in his Bible teaching is he'd gather all of these texts together, he'd pile them up and place them in the lap of those listening. And he could make a compelling argument. Don't you see the difference that exists between the Father and the Son? Don't you see the the deference that Jesus gives to the Father? Don't you see that the Father is altogether more superior and different than the Son? And so Arius would make his arguments from the Scriptures. And third, Arius was a gifted man in the area of PR. While an ordinary man's theology can barely make it out of his own house, Arius' theology spread fast and far. And Arius' theology would spread fast and far due to the use of song. His theology would be put to song and lyric and poem and given to the people and spread about. And we know how powerful songs are to spread news and thinking. And we have one song that Arius allegedly sung. It's been handed down to us. And while it's not catchy in nature, I think the catchiness got lost in translation, it clearly conveys the essence of what he was teaching about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished in his life. Arius would have sung. The uncreated God has made the Son, a beginning of things created. And by adoption has God made the Son into an advancement of himself, Yet the Son's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does He share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of His mysteries. The members of the Holy Trinity share unequal 
glories. So what can we gather about Arius' thinking about Jesus? Well, we can say this. Arius thought that Jesus was important. He sung songs about Jesus. He taught Jesus from the scriptures. He understood that Jesus stood in a rank far outstripping any other creature in glory, honor, privilege, and prestige. Even more, he understood that Jesus held a a special place in God's redemptive plan. He was the revealer of mysteries. But if you go back to that song and just ponder over it, spend some time reflecting on it, you'll quickly find that Arius' doctrine of Jesus is very troubling. And as the wider church came into contact with Arius' teaching upon Jesus, they grew disturbed as well by what they heard. And so on May 20th, in the year 325, the first ecumenical council of the church was gathered. Now we have to understand what the church was doing in this council. They did not gather to invent a new doctrine about Christ. Rather, what they were doing here was, was coming together to drop sharp borders around their understanding of Jesus. By the time of June 19th, about a month later, the council concluded with a a presentation of a creed, the Nicene Creed, a form of what we just read this morning, detailing their understanding of Christ from the Scriptures. And for the sake of our own clarity this morning, as we learn to confess Jesus, we can compare Arius' doctrine of the Son, a heterodox understanding, something that is false, what we find in the Nicene Creed, something that is true orthodox teaching. So Arius understood that the Son was made by God, and even though the Son held close relationship with God, he was substantially different from God. So the church was troubled by this. We should be troubled by this. And the church confessed. They said this, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. We can see the great lengths that the creed is going to in order to clarify the issue of who this Jesus is. According to the creed, Jesus exists in a different category than every other creature. Why? Well, the creed says Jesus is the one through whom all has been created. But the creed goes further even to define what this Jesus is. He is fully God, the creed says. The being of the Son is identical to the being of the Father. That which the Father has, so does the Son, as the creed says, of the same essence as the Father. And so we can go to a later creed known as the Athanasian Creed, and this creed spells out what they're trying to get at even more clearly. The Athanasian Creed says this, The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal. The Father is almighty, the Son is almighty. Now we can take a step back and ask, well, what are these guys trying to get done? What are these creeds trying to say to us? Well, they're saying this. The Son is not half God. The Son is not three-quarters God. The Son is not 99% God. But rather the Son shares in the fullness of deity, undiminished, undiluted. So we can press on this morning. And as we press on, we have to understand that doctrine does not stay in nice, neat, and tidy categories. Doctrinal development is much like a a two-year-old eating a plate of spaghetti. So Arius makes this, this confession of who Jesus is. He is a created being. 
but this, but this confession spills over into everything else. Like a two-year-old sits down and eats a plate of spaghetti, and what happens? Well, there's sauce absolutely everywhere, staining all of the clothes. And, and Arius' confession of Jesus stains the gospel. So according to Arius, because the Son of God was a creature made by God, there is only one way for this Son to travel, and that was up. Arius understood the life of the Son of God as a journey where he traveled higher and closer to God, becoming more and more like God. And he understood that the Son's mission of salvation was to gather and bring along as many others as he could get on this journey of upward mobility towards God. And so when Arius looked at the Christmas story, he did not find it as a, as a token of God's grace towards humanity, but rather when he read it, he found Jesus performing a, a good work so that he might get himself closer to God as he's moving up this ascent towards God. Now the church knew better because they knew the deity of Jesus. Jesus was not on an upward ascent of becoming more like God. He was God and is God and could never become any more like God. Rather, the Son in his mission of salvation was on a, a downward descent. And the Creed captures this idea beautifully with these words. The most precious words we find in the Creed are these. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Even more, as we look into the Creed, Jesus was not just a revealer of secrets, but God who came down to be like us in order to save us. The church went on to confess. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. So the church heard Arius' doctrine of salvation and they said, said, no, humanity cannot make its way back to God. We are far too lost and far too sinful for any of that. No amount of education can remedy the, the human situation. No amount of guidance, no matter how, how skillful or wise, can bring us back to God. No secrets, no matter how deep they are, can overcome our, our sickness in our hearts. Rather, the church confessed that God himself must come down and intervene in our situation. And the gospel declares this blessed intervention. What happens in the gospel? Well, the Son of God became incarnate, meaning that he became like us, taking humanity to himself. The Son of God suffered and was crucified and buried, meaning that he bore the, the burden of our guilt. Even more, the Son of God was raised on the third day, meaning that he triumphed over death for us. The Nicene Creed is, is proclaiming to us the way of salvation. God came down incarnate. This controversy that we see between Arius and the church brings clarity to our understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is all about. And in light of the creed, we can ask, well, well, who is the Son of God? And if we've been listening carefully, we can say, the Son is God, fully God. And we can ask, well, what has the Son accomplished in his ministry? And if we've been listening carefully this morning, we can say this, he came down for us, and for our salvation. But this morning, we cannot be content with the church's confession by itself. We ourselves need to dig in. We have to ask, well, do the scriptures support this identification of the Son? Do the scriptures support this proclamation of the gospel? 
According to the scriptures, can we say that Jesus is himself God? Even more, can we say that the Son has come down to save us? That's what's going on in the scriptures. Now, as we consider these questions, there are a lot of texts we could run to and grab hold of and prove this. However, instead of piecemealing a bunch of proof texts together, making a patchwork quilt, we're just going to turn to one text. We're going to turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians and see how this passage undergirds, underpins the church's confession. So if you know the book of Philippians, Paul is performing a very pastoral work in this letter. He is encouraging the church, the Philippian church, to pursue unity and sacrificial love in the body of Christ. And so in chapter 2, verse 4, he turns his attention to the church and he commands them, saying this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Command's pretty straightforward. Look to the interests of others before you look to your own. And we have to notice that Paul does not just give to the church a bare command. He could have. I'm an apostle. You're the people. I have authority from God. Listen to me. Look to the interests of others. Do it. Get it done. What's so interesting here in the book of Philippians is Paul gives logic and rationale to this command. Why must the church act this way and live this way? And Paul gives us two reasons for this. First, Paul points us to the person of Jesus. And he writes this about Jesus in verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here's Paul. He's dealing with this church, and he wants this church to pursue love, sacrificial unity. And what does he do? Well, he places before their eyes the pre-incarnate Christ. And here we can draw a very basic insight from Paul's words. Jesus existed before the incarnation. The birth stories that we read in Matthew's and Luke's gospel is not the beginning of Jesus' story. He existed before that. But Paul wants us to see more about this Jesus. Not only does Paul stress that Jesus existed before the birth story, but that he existed in a certain state of affairs. Paul says he was in the form of God. Now when Paul says this, he was in the form of God, it doesn't mean that Jesus was like God or close to God, but actually God himself. What Paul's saying is whatever attributes come to mind when we think about God, whatever glories come to our minds when we think about God, whatever majesty comes to our mind when we think about God, it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. He was in the form of God. Donald MacLeod describes this reality so well. He says, speaking of Jesus, he possessed all the majesty of his deity. He performed all of its functions and enjoyed all of its prerogatives. He was adored by his father and worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain and frustration and embarrassment. He existed in, in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. He was in the form of God. We see Christ's deity displayed perfectly here in Philippians chapter 2. We need to see a second thing. Paul points us to what this Jesus did. Verses 6 and 7. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And in verses 6 and 7, we see the clarity of Jesus' work. This work in its sensual form is what? Well, it's humbling. 
It's self-effacing. It's, it's condescending. Jesus' journey in the incarnation was a journey radically downwards. Now, we have to focus in on the phrase that Paul uses. He, he emptied himself. Now, when Paul writes this of Christ, he doesn't mean that in the incarnation that Christ ceased to be God or, or ceased to share in the divine nature or ceased to wield his divine attributes. Rather, what Paul is doing, he's underscoring the very type of work that Jesus undertook for our salvation. Paul goes on to spell this out for us in verses 7 and 8. He says, but he emptied himself. And we can ask, well, what does that mean, Paul? And he explains, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what we find in these verses, verses 7 and 8, is breathtaking humility. The son who possessed all rights, the one who commanded angel armies, the master of the universe, did what? He took the form of a servant. He became as one who had no rights, as one who could claim no privileges to himself. He became a slave. The sovereign one was now bound wholly to others' wills. Paul declares, what did Jesus do? He came down by taking the form of a servant. Even more, we see in this text, the son through whom all was created... Look at creation, stars, oceans, mountains, beasts, birds, humans. This one took humanity to himself. He became a part of creation. The transcendent one who by virtue of his deity, who never knew weakness or hunger or thirst or pain or trouble, entered fully into our human situation. He bore a body of human frailty, one prone to sickness and weariness and hunger and fatigue. Just read the gospel accounts. There is Jesus Christ sleeping in a boat. There is Jesus Christ thirsty upon the cross. Paul declares the descent of the Son of God being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. But we must understand this morning that the Son's descent did not stop at this destination of humanity. It was not enough for the Son in his work of salvation to just become like us. He did not just bear human sickness, but he bore human unrighteousness. He did not just put up with human frailty, but he took to himself human sin. Jesus' path downwards took him to the bitter cross where all the sins of God's people, past and present and future, hung upon his righteous shoulders. Jesus' path downwards took him into a bitter tomb where he was wrapped up in death. Jesus' path downwards sent him colliding with the righteous wrath of God. And Paul declares the descent of the Son of God to us. He says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So brothers and sisters, when we study Paul's words in Philippians 2, we can clearly see where the church got its doctrine of Christ and his gospel work. And so we can ask again, in light of the scriptures, Who is this Jesus? And we can confess with the church throughout the ages, this Jesus is God fully. And we can ask, after we've listened to the scriptures, what has this Christ done? And we can confess with the church throughout the ages, he came down for us and for our salvation. What good news to have. So we've looked at the the church's historic confession. We've looked at the scripture's teaching of Jesus. 
Now we can begin to apply this to ourselves, and I have three applications I want to press upon you this morning. The first application is this. We must be a people devoted to knowing the gospel. So as we think about it this morning, we can truly say there are so many causes well worth our time and energy. There are so many studies that we can pursue with earnestness. But whatever we do with our hands and whatever we do with our heads, the great preoccupation of the corporate people of God ought to be this. Knowing Christ Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What has he done? And it is here the the history of the church preaches loudly to us. We can look at the apostles' ministry. What did they devote their time and their energy to? Well, the Apostle Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. We can ask, well, what did the church produce in its first ecumenical council? What did it pursue? What did it devote itself to protecting and knowing? Well, it was the knowledge of Christ Jesus. They came and they announced to the watching world, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Where people devoted to knowing Christ Jesus. This brings us to a second application. Not only must we know the gospel and continue to learn the gospel and grow up in the gospel, but we must be a people devoted to guarding the gospel. Now, as we think about it, we guard that which is most valuable to us. We do it naturally. What do we do with our homes when we leave? Well, we lock them up. We put security systems on them. We lock our cars. We watch our children play in the yard because they're they're precious to us. We guard that which is valuable. And in the same way, we are called to guard the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that we keep the gospel out of reach from the dying world. No, we as the people are are committed to vigorously proclaiming, announcing, and calling people to embrace the gospel. But what it does mean is that we are a people zealous to keep the gospel pure and undefiled. We are people jealous for the truth of the gospel, that it would be proclaimed truthfully and faithfully and fully, that it would be untainted. Paul's words to his young disciple press us on this matter. At the end of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul turns to Timothy and he says this, O Timothy, there are so many things you can devote your life to. There are so many things going on in the life of the church. There are so many things to look after, but this is the most important matter. O Timothy, guard the gospel entrusted to you. The Apostle Paul says the same thing to us. There are so many things going on in your life. There are so many things going on in the church, but this has been entrusted to you. Do this. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. We have a third application as well. Well, we must know the gospel and grow in our knowledge of it and guard the gospel. We must do something more than these. We could say even something more important. We must worship God in light of his gospel. The truth of God requires our affections. It requires our songs. It requires our praises, our joy, and our attention. And what we have before us this morning is the greatest of wonders, the greatest of mysteries. God has become flesh. Athanasius, he's an old dead guy. He was a very early defender of orthodox theology about Jesus. 
And he would have been at the, at the Nicene Council as a young man, a deacon, watching the proceedings. And later on, as the church flirted with Arius' doctrine after this council, he stood in the breach and proclaimed Christ. And he teaches us this morning what we're to do with this knowledge. In a book that he wrote later in life, he says this, In short, such and so many are the Savior's achievements that follow from his incarnation that try to number them as like gazing at the open sea and trying to count the waves. What Athanasius says here is so helpful for how we respond this morning. Just think, what do you do when you get vacation? So many of us, we take our vacation by a body of water. And what do we do by the body of water? We take a chair or a towel and we plop ourselves down in front of that body of water. And what do we do? We simply look with amazement and wonder, watching the endless waves roll in. What Athanasius is telling us is that there is something greater than any body of water. It is Christ Jesus incarnate. And what he is saying is, if we get this doctrine, if it burrows down into our hearts, what we ought to do is we ought to take our chair or our towel and plop ourselves down in front of God incarnate and gaze at him. Gaze at his beauty, taking in his endless majesty. That's what we do if we get this. And so I urge you this Christmas season to do this very work. Go to that great ocean that is Christ Jesus. Plop down and and gaze on his endless beauties. Go to Luke's account of the birth of the Savior again and, and linger over that great text. Go to Matthew's account of the Savior and search it out. See the glory there. Hover over the details. Feed on them again and again. And let these texts lead you to worship God incarnate, the Son of God, who came down for us and for our salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for the gospel. We confess there's no way that we can make our our way back to you. We rejoice that your son has come down for us and for our salvation, that God himself incarnate, our savior. Oh, Father, grant us grace that we might know the gospel and guard the gospel, even more that we might worship in light of the gospel. Oh, Father, give us eyes of wonder now that we might see and wonder at the accomplishments of Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, do this, we pray. Amen.